afternoon, everyone. Um, this is WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Also streaming online, online at WVEW.org. Today, it's Indigo Radio. Every Sunday at noon, deepening understanding, making connections. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. Find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and also on Instagram. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not the radio station. I'm Becca Polk. I'm a teacher in Vermont, and I'm also a graduate of the Spark Teacher Training Program. I'm Nina Kunimoto. I'm on the board today, um, and I am a graduate student at UMass Boston, and I'm also a Spark Teacher Training Program graduate. And I'm Marisa Nielsen, also a Spark alum, and I work with the program, and I am a second grade teacher in Vermont. So today we are going to be discussing the historical context of Venezuela, particularly uh, resistance to um, imperialism and capitalism through both uprisings before and during the Bolivarian Revolution. Um, and we're going to be connecting this to current attempts, um, the ter- current attempted coup of Venezuela backed by the United States. In the show today, we're going to be joined by Venezuelan-born NYU professor Alejandro Velasco. He is author of Barrio Rising, Urban Popular Politics and the Making of Modern Venezuela. So this is a um, this will be a three part series. Uh, this is our first part. We have a, a, lo- a number of great um, resources lined up to talk to us about different aspects of this attempted coup by um, the United States and, and many parts of the world. Other people backing the United States. So this is the first of three parts. Um, so the second part will air on February twenty fourth, and the final part will um, be on March tenth. Um, In future shows, we will discuss more the history and current interventions of U.S. imperialism and the role of the media and a deeper analysis of the current attempted coup supported by the United States. So before we jump in uh, to the historical context of Venezuela, uh, we wanted to give a little update about um, the current events going on in Venezuela. Uh, This is excerpt from Democracy Now!, Today, Venezuela remains in a state of crisis as opposition forces, with the backing of the United States, attempt to unseat the government of Nicolás Maduro. Venezuelan Defense Minister Vladimir Pedrino López said the military continues to stand by Maduro. His marks came one day after President Trump announced that the U.S. would recognize opposition leader Juan Guaido. Guaido, thank you, as Venezuela's new leader. Guaido, the new head of Venezuela's National Assembly, declared himself president on Wednesday during a large opposition protest. This U.S.-led effort targeting the oil-rich nation of Venezuela dates back two decades or more, I would say, since the late Hugo Chavez became president in 1999. The U.S. has imposed a de facto embargo on oil from Venezuela's state-run oil company. The new sanctions include exemptions from for several U.S. firms, including Chevron, Halliburton, um, to allow them to continue working in Venezuela. Um, But this sanction prohibits Citgo from remitting profits to Venezuela. And this is really important. It means that the Venezuelan government uh, is being deprived of approximately $1 billion a year. And Trump has promised that all of that money is going to go to the opposition 
in helping to uh, make this coup a reality. And it's really important for us to understand that there is no case ever in the past, whether it was Grenada or Guatemala or Chile, in which the U.S. intervention um, resulted in, in better conditions for people or even democracy. And I think the 1973 um, coup in Chile is a clear example and um, the coup in Guatemala, dictators, right, that oppress and, and murder its people and, and destroy democracy and and so. more recently the 2009 coup in honduras yes, as well absolutely yeah all right we'd like to just read a statement from the u.s um from portside magazine called u.s labor against the war a statement of u.s intervention in, in venezuela they say the u.s has no legitimate claim to intervene in the internal affairs of other countries to take sides in internal political disputes or to undermine governments elected by the people. We have seen the disastrous consequences of recent US interventions in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and through its alliance with Saudi Arabia and Yemen. US intervention in Venezuela can only bring further hardship and suffering as followed US support for the 2009 coup in Honduras that overthrew the elected government there and contributed to the stream of asylum seekers now on our southern border seeking relief from that disaster. It reveals the deep cynicism of U.S. policymakers that they denounce what they call a dictatorial regime in Venezuela while providing unlimited support to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and its murderous, absolute dictatorship of the royal family. The U.S. also supports a host of other autocrats and authoritarians, absolute monarchs and dictators in Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Turkmenistan, Bahrain, Qatar, Oman, United Arab Emirates, Egypt, just to name a few. There is no case in which U.S. intervention in the international affairs of other countries has led to greater democracy and better conditions of life for the people. In the case of Venezuela, the economic distress has been precipitated largely by the decline in world oil prices. Oil is the most important revenue source for the Venezuelan government, but Venezuela's economic difficulties have been greatly compounded by economic sanctions imposed on Venezuela by the United States beginning in March 2015 under Barack Obama. These have been explicitly designed to choke off Venezuela's access to international markets and resources for the purpose of destabilizing the Maduro government and, before that, the government of Hugo Chavez. The economic chaos the U.S. now points to in Venezuela as justification for intervention is in large part a consequence of U.S. policy, which is designed to pro provoke popular unrest, sow divisions, and precipitate an uprising against the government. We strongly condemn the tactics, the tactic support given to President Trump's intervention by leaders of the Democratic Party. Whether articulated by Republicans or Democrats, U.S. intervention to destabilize other countries violates the U.N. Charter and international law. This interference in Venezuela's internal affairs serves the interests of wealthy elites and multinational corporations, not the interests of the Venezuelan or American people. It is always the people who end up paying for these interventions in suffering blood and treasure. Real international solidarity calls upon us to demand of our government, hands, hands off, off Venezuela. Venezuela. Right. 
And we will link to that um, on our Facebook page because I know sometimes it's hard to hear something that we're reading, but we thought that was a really important way to start off that these are the purpose of the shows. Mm -hmm. We are against U.S. intervention entirely. Absolutely. Um, So we're going to take a little break, um, and our first song is called uh, Canzone per Hugo Chavez. Um, I believe that is in Italian. And... For the moment, the horizon is on fire, democracy rising, bounced on a wire, liberation, you can smell it in the air, things are moving, and the rich are all aware, some will talk along the sidelines, others they will do, sing a song for Chavez, before the have arrived Cuban doctors in their thousands on the street in the shanty towns they're pouring the concrete the opposition whines that Venezuela is all through sing a song for Chavez before the creed from their back pocket they'll take it out for all to see and their motto is death or liberty there are those who will complain. welcome back to indigo radio so today we are discussing the historical context of venezuela particularly of the bolivarian revolution as connected to the current attempted coup of venezuela and we have on the phone with us alejandro velasco can you hear us Yep, absolutely. Hi, Alejandra. This is Becca. This is Nina. Hi, Becca. How are you? <laughs> Hi, Nina. Um, so Alejandro is Venezuelan-born NYU professor and author of Barrio Rising, Urban Popular Politics and the Making of Modern Venezuela. Thank you so much for coming on the air today. Sure. Thanks for the invitation. I should apologize to you and your listeners. I have a little, little bit of a cold, so. <laughs> no problem. <coughs> Alejandro... Can you just start by giving us a brief summary uh, for our listeners about what's happening right now in Venezuela? Yeah. So right now we see in Venezuela is a power struggle between two people and their international backers. Um, so we have on the one hand, of course, Nicolás Maduro, who was um, the hand-picked uh, successor of Hugo Chávez um, after he died in 2013 and has been in leading Venezuela since then. Um, he won re-election um, last year in what were um, contested elections, or at least uh, contentious. And so his challenger, Nicolás uh, Juan Guaidó, who is the National Assembly president, claims that uh, since the elections were fraudulent, that uh, Nicolás Maduro's uh, new six-year term of office, which uh, began on January 10th, is illegitimate. And so Guaido has um, since uh, claimed that the presidency, or at least power of the executive, um, and he has received the backing of many countries in Latin America, as well as very vocally and aggressively the United States. Uh, meanwhile, Maduro has received the support of um, countries like Russia and China and Turkey and others. Um, so that's where we are now, a pretty uh, significant um, stalemate in, in sort of... Um, 
you know, showdown between not just local players, but uh, really geopolitical ones as well. That's great. So we are going to be linking to your interviews on Democracy Now! as well as on the Dig podcast for listeners to get a more um, expansive um, understanding of what's happening today. Um, And we wanted to talk to you particularly about the history of Venezuela that has led today. So I was wondering if you could talk, I mean, this is a huge question, I understand, and we have limited time on the radio, but um, how Venezuela has been a part of a struggle against imperialism and capitalism, particularly in this section before the Bolivarian Revolution, if you could talk about that. Well, I mean, before the you know before Hugo Chavez was elected in 1999, the fact is that the United uh, that Venezuela is actually very very close with the United States, and had been since the beginning of the century when um, oil was first um, be, you know, first began to be produced for for export. Um, you know, successive series of um, military dictatorships, and then followed after 1958 by democratic governments made um, close links with the United States, a centerpiece of their political as well as well as their economic model. And that began to change in the late 80s, early 90s, um, when Venezuela's economy uh, really tanks um, after what had been a period in the 1970s of oil boom. Um, and then that uh, is ushered, what it, what it ushers in in the late uh, 1980s, early 90s, is a period of tremendously devastating economic austerity, uh, uh, you know, propagated in large part by the United States and organizations like the IMF, um, that really, you know, devastated the lives of, of most Venezuelans of, of working class. Um, and so that's basically what Hugo Chavez tapped into um, in his rise towards the presidency. Um, and then what he begins to implement as a significant policy, uh, policy design um, when he's uh, installed as president. Um, but you know, historically, Venezuela has had very strong relations with the United States and has um, you know, tended to side very strongly with uh, U.S. policy. Mm-hmm. And that was a really a turning point that measures um, op- like the anti or the austerity measures that were imposed by the IMF. Um, it seemed like the people in Venezuela were really opposed to that because partly my understanding is that um, this abolished the food and fuel subsidies, increased gas prices, and privatized some of the state industries and cut the spending on health care and education, like in a lot of other countries where neoliberal policies um, were implementing. Can you talk about like the impact that that would have had, particularly in places like Caracas? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I was, you know, growing up in Caracas when these policies um, were first announced and then implemented um, in 1989. Um, and I think partly what was so dramatic about that particular moment is that it was not only unexpected, but in fact, um, Venezuelans had largely been assured that it wasn't going to happen. So the president that um, is in charge of bringing these policies about is a man by the name of Carlos Andres Perez who had um, been president earlier in the 1970s, which was a period of, of oil boom um, in the context of the U.S., uh, uh, the Arab oil embargo to the, to the U.S. Um, in, the, in the mid-1970s. Um, and so you know, he had spent lavishly in the 1970s, um, and then after he left office, oil prices collapsed in the early 80s, and then the 80s were a real period of tremendous economic um, crisis and uncertainty. And then when he runs again for a president in the late um, 1980s, he does so promising 
two things. Number one, that he's going to bring back that era of what was so-called Venezuela Saudita or Saudi Venezuela that had been characterized or as people had characterized his earlier presidency. And number two, explicitly saying that he would not negotiate with the IMF a plan for, um, you know, for economic uh, austerity. And one of the first things he does after he's installed as president um, is actually to sign a deal with the IMF. And yes, this deal uh, contemplated the elimination of, uh, of uh, or at least a reduction of gasoline subsidies, of significant amounts of, um, of food subsidies, especially directed towards the poor, um, uh, huge amounts of privatization, which of course then would have led and did lead, in fact, to significant amounts of unemployment, um, lack of social security, and uh, basically just a collapse of social services. Um, who, of course, um, the poor in Venezuela had been most reliant on in order to make their lives, um, you know, manageable. So it was, uh, it was a time of, of significant amount of chaos and uncertainty, but most importantly, a sense that we cannot trust the leaders that we have elected. Um, and that really created a tremendous fissure in terms of the distrust between the people and, um, and the political system. Thank you. So could you then describe um, the next piece of this now, I guess? So, so then what next? What, what came next? Yeah, so, you know, I think what, so a couple of things are important here. Number one, this was not supposed to happen in Venezuela. Venezuela was supposed to be the showcase democracy of the region, not only the showcase democracy, but one of the strongest economies. Um, you know, reams and reams of, of academic scholarship by political scientists and economists and others had been produced in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, basically arguing that Venezuela was an exception, an exception to the rule of either military dictatorship or of civil war or of perennial economic and political chaos that had really racked the rest of the continent. And um, by contrast, Venezuela seemed to be a pretty well-functioning, uh, you know, two-party um, democratic system where parties alternated in power and there was broad kind of social consensus and um, the riches of, of oil were um, broadly distributed across the population. Um, and so the, you know, not only were, the austerity was, um, was a shock, but then the response on the part of the population was a shock. And the way that that happened was that when these measures were announced and implemented on, um, January, uh, on February 27th of 1989, people rose up spontaneously and um, all throughout uh, you know, Venezuela, but it's specifically in Caracas, and then uh, uh, another major shock was how the state responded to these uh, popular protests, and they did so by basically deploying the military in what became a massacre of, um, uh, of historic proportions in Venezuela. It was known as the Caracaso. Um, and so as a result, um, you know, all sorts of um, ideas about what was strong about Venezuela's political system and economic system began to collapse very rapidly. <clears throat> and one of the things that you begin to see is a lot more discontent, not only in the streets expressed in protest, but also in ranks, for instance, of the military. So in 1992, um, we see uh, Hugo Chavez first come onto the scene. In fact, on Monday, it'll be the um, 20, um, the math is terrible, 25th anniversary of, uh, no, 30th? No, 25th anniversary of the coup that Hugo Chavez attempted to try to overthrow Carlos Andres Perez. Um, and that, even though it was a failed coup, it really, uh, you know, captured, you know, captivated people's ideas as to the necessity for some kind of change from the political system that had existed. 
Um, so that's that's what came next in, in, in sort of short order. But then after that, it was a very rapid succession of events, political and economic. Carlos Andres Perez was impeached. There was another coup attempt in November of 1992. Um, then uh, a new president was elected, but he had been president before as well, and he was in his 90s, which suggested that there was really no kind of new blood coming into the, the, the political system that had been established 40 years before. Um, and uh, and then a, a huge banking crisis, uh, crisis happened in the mid-1990s. That's around the time when my family left Venezuela. Um, and so, uh, and then after that, you had the, the rise of Chavez as, as an unlikely presidential candidate in, um, in his victory. That's great. And so 1999 um, was when Chavez was elected, or he went into office in 1999. Could you talk about um, the time that he was in office, the changes that took place, particularly around the political economy of Venezuela? Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> I mean, I think it's important to to understand and, and, and to do a little bit of um, you know, historical memory here. So, of course, um, I think now most people, when they hear the, the, the name Hugo Chavez, they associate, especially in the United States, with, you know, very radical kind of um, socialism and anti-imperialism, especially anti-U.S. sentiment. That's not actually... Um, you know, the, the Chavez not only that was elected, but the Chavez that um, governed during the, his first few years in office. Um, in fact, Chavez didn't even speak about socialism until around 2004, 2005. And he doesn't begin to actually implement any policies that broadly can be conceived of as socialist until around 2006, 2007. So, you know, the persona of Chavez as a socialist firebrand is actually, you know, something that we project um, throughout his entire presidency, when in fact the first few years of his presidency were marked by very tepid and um, kind of very piecemeal reforms grounded primarily on the basis of um, fighting corruption and getting rid of the previous political system, which again had you know, resulted in all of these crises that I mentioned before, the late 80s and, and, and 1990s. Um, and so, you know, one of the first things that he uh, promotes is a national constituent assembly to rewrite um, a constitution or to write up a new constitution, and that that passes in 1999. Um, and then the other major thing that he does is to try to take control, again, of the national oil industry, PDVSA. So even though PDVSA had been nationalized or had, had been started as a national oil company in the mid-1970s in this period of, of oil boom that I mentioned before, in the 1990s, during this moment of austerity, it had uh, been slowly reprivatized. Um, and so, uh, you know, one of Chavez's major programs in those first years was to try to take control again of the state oil industry as a state oil industry that could then, <clears throat> you know, have its revenues and resources be directed towards, um, you know, those who were most in need in the population rather than towards lining the pockets of the executives in the oil industry and others. Um, and so that's really what began the first kind of major clashes between Chavez and, um, and what at the time was an extremely disloyal opposition. That's when we saw, for instance, after he announced that he was uh, firing the, the board of PDVSA and appointing a more friendly, a friendlier board um, to some of his plans, um, that's when you saw a, an uprising that eventually led to his ouster in April of 2002, and then his uh, quick return to office um, a few days later. 
that's also what led to a, uh, an incredibly grievous oil industry strike um, or, or lockout in December of 2002 into January of 2003, which, you know, caused a tremendous um, economic turmoil in Venezuela. Um, and so, but, but again, these policies were primarily, um, uh, you know, aimed at taking, con- you know, reasserting control over the oil industry. There was very little mention even then as to, you know, any kind of socialism. And, and it, the, the anti-Americanism did begin to surface because the United States was deeply behind the coup in 2002 and was, um, you know, deeply behind the opposition and supporting the opposition in these anti-democratic measures. Um, so that's when that began. Um, but it wasn't, I guess my point is to say that it, it didn't immediately follow. There was nothing uh, pre established that would have suggested that the kind of course that um, Hugo Chavez took a little bit later was already set in motion in the beginning of his tenure in 1999. Okay, we're going to take a little song break. Um, And so we will uh, come back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WBEWLP Brattleboro 107.7. And um, we are in we are we are in conversation right now about Venezuela. and we are interviewing. We're talking with a Venezuelan-born NYU professor, Alejandro Velasco. We'll be right back. Porque los pobres no tienen a donde volver la vista, la vuelven hacia los cielos. Con la esperanza infinita de encontrar lo que a su hermano en este mundo le quitan palomita. ¿Qué cosas tiene la vida y zambita? Porque los pobres no tienen a dónde volver la voz. La vuelven hacia los cielos buscando una confesión, ya que su hermano no escucha la voz de su corazón palomita. ¿Qué cosas tiene la vida y zambita? Porque los pobres no tienen en este mundo esperanza, se amparan en la otra vida como una justa balanza, por eso las procesiones, las velas y las alabanzas, palomita, ¿qué cosas tiene la vida y zambita? Y para seguir la mentira, lo llama su confesor, le dice que Dios no quiere ninguna revolución, ni pliego ni sindicato, que ofende su corazón, palomita, qué cosas tiene la vida y zambita. De tiempos inmemoriales, que se ha inventado el infierno, para asustar a los pobres, con sus castigos eternos y al pobre que es inocente con su inocencia creyendo palomita qué cosas tiene la vida y zambita del corazón de una iglesia salió el cantor Alejandro en vez de las letanías yo lo escucho profanando yo creo que a tal cantor habría que excomulgarlo palomita ¿Qué cosas tiene la vida y zambita? Como al revés está el mundo, me mandarán a prisión y al cantor de la sotana le darán premio de honor, pero prisión ni gendarme habrán de acallar mi voz. 
palomita, qué cosas tiene la vida y zambita. Today's programming on WVEW is underwritten in part by Everyone's Books. Located in downtown Brattleboro at 25 Elliott Street, Everyone's Books is a family-owned, independent bookstore that has been serving the community for over 30 years. They specialize in books about social change, the environment, politics, and travel, and offer a huge range of children's books. You can reach them by phone at 802-254-8160 or online via their website at everyonesbks.com. WVEW thanks Everyone's Books for their support of this station. Welcome back. You're listening to um, 107.7 FM, WBEWLP Brattleboro, Indigo Radio. Um, and I'm sorry, I forgot to introduce the song earlier. It is a song, I believe it's a, a Cuban song by Por Que Los Pobres No Tienen. Um, and it's sung by Violeta Parra. And today we're discussing the historical context. We're in conversation with Alejandro Velasco, who's an NYU professor and author of Barrio Rising, Urban Popular Politics and the Making of Modern Venezuela. And we're going to go to part two of our interview and um, talking more about the impacts of the Bolivarian Revolution. So um, I have a, uh, this is Nina, hi. Um, I have a really quick question. Um, You had mentioned about um, historical memory and, you know, uh, Simon Bolivar comes from Venezuela and there is sort of this, a longer sort of line of historical memory that that speaks to um, uprisings. And so um, I'm just kind of curious of like, how does that, memory, historical memory, play into, even before Chavez, um, play into sort of the uprisings and, and community mobility, meaning, mobility meaning uh, mobilization, excuse me, um, in Venezuela. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Venezuela is um, sort of the birthplace of independence movements in Latin America. Um, it's uh, not only through Bolivar, but you know, through other independence era figures from the early 19th century, it leads really the the fight against Spanish um, colonialism. Um, Bolivar takes armies from Venezuela to help liberate Colombia, then liberate um, Peru, um, uh, Ecuador, eventually help to to found this new country, Bolivia, um, and also intersected with other um, independence-minded, uh, you know, Latin Americans like San Martín coming from uh, from Argentina, who helped liberate Argentina and then Chile. Um, and so, you know, Venezuelans are extremely proud um, of this um, history of taking basically the lead and having a vanguard uh, role in anti-colonialism. The challenge is, um, as with any kind of historical memory, especially the further back you go, the, 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 the more prone it is to a certain kind of romanticization. Um, so that even though, of course, um, you know, Bolivar had very little love for, for Spaniards, um, he was actually very, uh, he admired very much George Washington and, um, and the U.S. officials for not only their own um, efforts to, you know, to, to seek independence, but for the kind of political system that they had established. Um, Bolivar also, you know, towards the end of his life, um, advocating, uh, advocated, uh, you know, kind of what he called a democratic dictatorship, especially because Latin Americans as a whole, these newly liberated countries, 
you know, in part, he, he made no um, he made no bones about this because of the way that Spanish colonialism had kept so many people impoverished and um, and uh, illiterate and the rest of it. That you know, it was really a difficult sell to try to be able to create a true democracy from from those kinds of um, conditions. Um, and so, even though yes, on the one hand, there is this tremendous uh, you know, pride on the part of Venezuelans for this history of. Um, uh, of of uh, fighting imperialism, um, uh, in 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 the nitty gritty of it, it's it's a more complicated history, and of course, it's that the complicated facets of history that always tend to to be alighted when um, they're called upon to craft something new in the future, um, and that's partly also you know what um, what Chavez was able to um, to accomplish to really take up the thread anew of um, of Bolivar and, and the Bolivarian image of fancy colonialism of anti-imperialism um, but at the same time uh, you know not really having to contend with some of the more um, you know the, uh, the more nuanced interpretations of what that actual you know, what that actual history represented mm-hmm. and you know this idea of democracy big D little D you know there's all these conversations around what is democracy and you um, talk about in your book the um, 23 de enero, the neighborhood um, kind of public ri- public housing um, in Caracas, kind of their own version of democracy and then different types of democratic tools. But also um, under Chavez, I believe there's there were 30,000 communal councils that were created by neighborhood residents to make decisions about their communities. So I'm wondering if you could talk about democracy as the resistance <coughs> of the people and what that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's important to understand, certainly again, that those, those earlier years of first period and also second period of Chavismo and, and Chavez's presidency as an incredibly exciting and effervescent um, laboratory for new forms of democracy that broke from what had been the um, certainly the, the, the U.S. imposed, but um, broadly understood to be the only form of democracy, which was liberal democracy, right? So direct representation um, of leaders, which then kind of went about their business through a well-established institutional apparatus, but then you know the, the role of citizens in that democracy is basically just to partake of elections, and that's that. Um, Chavez very early on, and in fact written into the Constitution that um, you know that that emerged from that Constituent Assembly process in 1999, was a very different definition of democracy, as he called it, and as, as was again enshrined in the Constitution. It was called participativa y protagonica, participatory and protagonistic, meaning that people themselves, to the extent that they were organized were the ones who could and should, in fact, take the reins over, um, you know, as much as possible decision-making. Um, and uh, this did translate into some really innovative institutional forms and arrangements. But, uh, for instance, one of them, as you mentioned, the communal councils, which were an immensely um, uh, successful uh, program in fostering grassroots democracy. Those happened you know, a little bit later, between 2007 and 2008, and they were meant as, an, as a way to try to have organized communities on the ground decide for themselves how they were going to allocate um, resources, especially coming from, from petrodollars, towards their communities. Um, and these were so successful, in fact, that um, even opposition sectors of, uh, of Venezuela, those who were otherwise you know, extremely anti-Chavismo, 
um, also organized into their own communal councils, understanding them to be, you know, very strong expression of grassroots democracy. Um, and there were other kind of really interesting experiments um, during this time, for instance, something called the Comités de Tierras Urbanas for the CDU's Urban Land Committees, which were an effort to get people, especially in Caracas, but in other urban areas who had, um, you know, decades prior squatted and, um, you know, over the, the course of decades, you know, established these sort of, um, you know, barrio communities, these, um, you know, self-built housing and, and slowly integrated into the grid of, of the cities. Um, what they always lacked, of course, was property titles to their, um, you know, to, to what they had built. And that always left them in a very precarious state legally. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, Chavez and Chavismo uh, organized these urban land committees, or at least helped um, jumpstart them as a way to get these communities, if, again, they organized, to then be recognized for their, uh, for their labor and to then receive property titles. So, um, yeah, the, the real um, sort of story of those earlier years of the Chavez period was not really a question about, you know, democracy versus dictatorship, but really about what types of democracy are going to be allowed to flourish or at least to be experimented with um, in a context where otherwise the only game in town is a very narrow understanding of democracy that is liberal democracy. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. And um, our last question for you today, Alejandro, is um, why do you think that such resistance and uprising like this is possible in Venezuela? And why are they not happening in other places, for example, here in the United States? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so... You know, I think a lot of factors. I think in the United States, the there's a much stronger um, federalist tradition where people, even I mean, it's a little bit of a paradox, right? I think that there's more ingredients for people to be able to organize locally, um, but at the same time, that local organization often seems to be to have a very sort of naturally built um, ceiling, such that you can't really, you know, in terms of making actual decisions at the at the federal level. Um, you in some ways have to, you know, to, to divorce yourself from those grassroots. There's also all sorts of institutional disincentives towards any kind of radical transformation in the United States having to do with the, you know, the way that the House of Representatives um, versus the Senate adjudicate um, you know, powers between, um, you know, uh, more populous sectors of the population and, and least ones. Um, and then also the extent to which the, the presidency um, as a as an institution is one that on the one hand does have a significant amount of power, but on the other, uh, at least when there's an opportunity for a more progressive-minded uh, you know people to come into office, they tend to recoil at the idea that they can actually use that power to actually bring about some major transformations of the political system, which then speaks to a larger reality, which of course is something that you know people like Bernie Sanders and others have have, have pointed to. Um, that the, you know the real problem in the United States and the political system is that there is very I mean obviously today we know that there are significant differences but when it comes to actually um, undertaking the kinds of um, you know redistributive agendas or actually ceding more power to people on the ground than rather than just titular power or even rhetorical power. Um, but in, when it comes to those kinds of policies, there's a lot more that um, 
Republicans and Democrats have in common than um, uh, than than otherwise, um, and so the the resistance really comes at the level of um, uh, you know the sort of a unified front against some of these more radical measures, or even not so radical, just you know things like the debates that we're having now about top tax, you know, top marginal tax rates, and you know this mm-hmm. uh, amazing disbelief that somebody could propose something like a you know seventy percent tax rates for for millionaires and billionaires, right? Um, and so I think that, you know, th- there's a stronger sense in the United States that the institutional apparatus is so well entrenched to keep certain sectors in power um, that, um, you know, it's, it's really daunting to imagine, especially if there isn't already a strong tradition of being able to, uh, to rise up and, um, and to undertake some sort of radical change. Um, it's, it's very difficult to be able to encourage people to, to imagine possibilities beyond um, beyond what they've been told is um, is on the horizon, so um, that's not a knock. It's just um, it's just the way that I see it. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. You're listening to Indigo Radio. We've been discussing with Venezuelan-born NYU professor Alejandro Velasco. He is author of Barrio Rising: Urban Popular Politics and the Making of Modern Venezuela. I actually ordered your book, so unfortunately, I didn't get to read it before talking to you. But I'm excited to read it. Thank, oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for talking with us, and keep Indigo Radio in mind if we can support any of the work that you're doing. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. And, um, yeah, if I could just put a plug in for NACLA, I report on the Americas, which is a progressive mm-hmm. outlet that um, features stories about Latin America and the United States from a progressive angle. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Take care. Great. Take care. All right, thank, thank you. you. Bye. Um, I wanted to do one correction. Uh, one of our listeners, Kari Dodd in Massachusetts, shout out to her, one of our big fans since the beginning. Uh, just let me know that Violeta Parra is actually Chilean, not Cuban. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I knew there was something. I, I knew. Yeah. Thank you. Because I was thinking 1973, Allende. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Kari <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to go into another song break. And I... I'm not sure. I did not choose this song. Choose bit. The the musician is um, Venezuelan. Um, and Dame pa matala, um, el levantamiento del latino. So um, the rising above the Latinos. Escucha lo que digo, yo popo, quiero que sea testigo, yo popo, vamos, ven al camino, yo popo, del levantamiento del latino, yo popo, escucha lo que digo, yo popo, quiero que sea testigo, yo popo, vamos, ven al camino, yo popo, del levantamiento del latino, a levantarse temprano porque para luego es tarde tu ciudad, tu país, tu continente está que arde y un tren muy grande que va hacia la izquierda se expande por Venezuela, Colombia, Cuba y también los Andes. Le dedico esto a México, donde no hace falta léxico para decirle a mexicanos que reivindican lo étnico. Necesario es sacar la fuerza, la dignidad, la cultura y la historia que está debajo de la ciudad. Porque es allí donde concentra la irreverencia, la insurgencia, resistencia, inteligencia y diferencia entre la ciencia y las convicciones como las de tu pacatari que hoy volvió hecho millones. Recuerdo Pancho Villa Uño, fuerza con zapata para que el pueblo mexicano tuviese una vida grata, pero maltratan a estudiantes y hasta los matan, porque no les conviene ver cómo esto se desata. Yo popo, escucha lo que digo, yo popo, quiero que seas testigo, yo popo, vamos, ven al camino, yo popo, del 
levantamiento del latino. Escucha lo que digo. Quiero que seas testigo. Vamos, ven al camino del levantamiento del latino. Recorre, muchachos, desde México a Argentina, para que sientas la fuerza de tu gente latina que subestiman, maltratan y discriminan. Si hay algún intelectual como el Che, lo asesinan. Rima y combina la lucha desde Argentina, que se vaya el Reino Unido de las Islas Malvinas. Siempre terminan creyendo que nos dominan, pero aquí con este canto esa creencia culmina. Por ahí comentan que el levantamiento es falso, pero para sentir la verdad hay que caminar descalzos. Hay que saber, como latinos hay que entender que la integración del sur es para crecer. No hacen falta las fronteras que en un mundo de personas donde para comunicarse poseen el mismo idioma. No hacen falta diplomáticos, políticos, burgueses, burocracia, oligarquía de ridículos. La unión de nuestros pueblos trae nuevos horizontes para que obreros, artesanos y campesinos del monte tengan soporte ante lo que impone el norte porque primero lo nuestro y después ver lo que se importe. Con mi canto edifico, con mi canto yo construyo porque yo sí soy latino y para mí eso es un orgullo. Yo nunca huyo, ni escapo ni me escabullo luchando aquí por los míos, luchando aquí por los tuyos. Por los desaparecidos de los que perdí la cuenta que siempre tenían preguntas y nunca les dieron respuesta. Es que molesta ver tanta gente joven muerta que ofrecieron soluciones y mataron sus propuestas. Yo, oh, oh, escucha lo que digo. Yo, oh, oh, quiero que seas testigo. Yo, oh, oh, vamos, ven al camino. Yo, oh, Levantamiento del latino, escucha lo que digo, quiero que seas testigo, vamos, ven al camino, del levantamiento del latino. Cientos de años de historia trataron de tapar con roca, para imponer su Dios y su iglesia ambiciosa, ideología de dominación colonialista, bruta la agresión, falsa fe racista, imperialista, esclavos en cadena trajeron de África dos Por la monarquía blanca, corona maldita que aplasta, etnia de basta, basta. Nuestra respuesta no estaba prevista. Indígenas blancos y negros en una sola piel unida. Viva la fuerza latina, con contundencia camina. América unida se activa en esta lucha que inspira. Esta nueva historia destina una victoria. Insurgencia del sol, sabiduría y gloria. Buscando la conexión primaria para transformar al pueblo. Welcome back to Indigo Radio. You're listening to WBEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM. And we talked today on the show with Alejandro Velasco. And this is a three-part series. Uh, we will be talking more on February 24th and March 10th and discussing more of the history and current interventions of U.S. imperialism, the role of the media, in order to take a deeper analysis of the current attempted coup, which is backed by the United States and probably finance too. <laughs> and also on that weekend of March 10th, um, there will be an, what's called Indigo Institute where, we, where we'll be talking about uh, perpetual war. All are invited, uh, location TBD, but it will be on March 9th. Um, and you can follow our Facebook page um, or Brattleboro Solidarity as well. Mm -hmm. And we'd love to see you there. So, you know, we're all teachers here in this studio and um, What do you think it is that our students should know about um, the U.S. and Venezuela and relationship with Latin America as a whole that they don't already get um, living in this country? Well, um, I can speak as a second grade teacher that um, some 
sometimes it's hard to talk about individual um, historical contexts um, through, you know, with second graders, but we do do a lot of learning about how to be together in the classroom um, and how to be in our community. Um, and we read a lot of picture books about um, who controls um, the decisions that are being made um, and what, what every human being should have. Um, so, so in second grade, that's sort of the, that's the main conversation is what, what should all people have, who should be in charge of those decisions. Um, and then we read books about examples of that happening. Um, and I know Becca and I were just talking about a book that's called The Streets Are Free. I read it with my second graders and she read it with her middle school students um, about uh, children in, in Caracas, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in Caracas, who um, have nowhere to play and they decide to come together um, and they ask the mayor for a playground and he, they make a big stink about it. And he says, yes, 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 we'll give you a playground. And they take all these fancy pictures and they put the mayor in the newspaper um, because elections are coming up. And then nothing ever happens and the mayor doesn't come through and the playground is not built. Um, and so the children decide, well, nobody's gonna do this for us. We have to do it for ourselves. Um, and the community comes together to build a playground. Mm -hmm. um, so we, I read that in second grade. And, and Becca, I don't know, what's your story about reading that to your middle school students? Well, I actually recently read it to my a, a group of middle schoolers who are working to build a youth center, or not build it by hand, but create it, um, envision it, and make it a possibility to have a youth center in Springfield, Vermont. And um, one of the students actually turned to me and said, I didn't understand what our project was until I read that book, The Streets Are Free. And I just am thinking about it in connection to our conversation today with Alejandro, just how much um, we have to learn from the um, organizing of ordinary people who've come together throughout history in Venezuela. You know, Chavismo is not about Chavez. It's about the awakening of people's consciousness to say, uh, you know, y'all basta, and that's from the Zapatistas, but enough is enough, you know? It's like people have the means to organize themselves and to um, demand what they deserve, and that's exactly what a lot of the history of Chavismo and the Bolivarian Revolution has been. Mm -hmm. You know, what about you and your teaching? You do older people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, currently I'm teaching a class about race, class, history, uh, I don't know, history, race, class, and gender. Um, and I definitely find, you know, in young college students, I mean, I also taught secondary, there's just a lack of understanding in U.S. for U.S. history as well as um, world history. Um, you know, they don't know anything about, you know, NAFTA and, and causing, you know, people to to become poorer in Latin America because of dumping corn and all kinds of other things. They don't know anything about, like, the coup that the U.S. backed. And so, you know, it's just there's just a lot of ignorance, I guess, um, which, you know, is very convenient for the government because then you don't have people um, saying that this isn't what we want. So I think having, well... Uh, our guest Alejandro said um, historical memory you know we have sort of historical I suppose both amnesia and just lack of knowledge mm -hmm. 
So I think I take I take back what I said that I should be teaching much more historical context to second graders as well. <laughs> <laughs> and I do think um, it's particularly important right now when all these conversations about the U.S.-Mexico border are being had um, that if we do not understand how the U.S. has destroyed countries Mm -hmm. people seeking refuge here are not coming because they think the united states is so great it's a last option whether they're coming from libya iraq afghanistan mexico uh, guatemala honduras all of these places have been touched by u.s imperialism uh, economic political and military that um have benefited wealthy elites and people are taking the sides uh, ideologically of the wealthy elites, not even realizing that it's going against their own interests. I think back to the first statement that we read in the letter from U.S. Labor Against the War, that intervention in Venezuela is against both the Venezuelan people and the American people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, before we go out today, we'd like to sort of make a few announcements um, Marisa, do you have some things on our calendar that's coming up? Just a reminder that March 9th will be Indigo Institute. Everyone is welcome. It's a study group uh, for the day where we'll be talking about um, perpetual war. Mm-hmm. And uh, any other study groups? Yeah, be? Brattleboro Solidarity is finishing up its construction of whiteness this Wednesday. And um, hopefully there will be more to come as it's an extremely important um, it white supremacy and the working against white supremacy it goes across all different topics absolutely and then um we'll we'll have more about indigo um the indigo institute coming up march 9th um and anyone who's listening is also welcome to um ask us about um, the spark teacher training program where we train teachers um teachers are resisting um so email us at brattleboro solidarity at gmail.com and please tune in to our shows coming up every week, Sunday at noon. This is Indigo Radio, but especially this three-part series starting today, February 24th and March 10th, to find out more, be part of the conversation more about Venezuela. Absolutely. So um, we're going to go out with a song by the Buena Vista Social Club. Um, uh, Ibrahim Ferrer didn't write this song, um, but I believe he just covers it. Called Hasta Siempre, Comandante Che Guevara. Guajira para el recuerdo Aprendimos a quererte Desde la histórica altura Donde el sol de tu bravura le puso cerco a la muerte, aquí se queda la clara, la entrañable transparencia de tu querida presencia, comandante Che Guevara. quemando la brisa con soles de primavera para plantar la bandera 